bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove, upon the same temporary platform, was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in a position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm thrown straight across the chest. A formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of those two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot blanking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope, between the bridge and the fort, were the spectators, 
A single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about 35 years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and a pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and a dark gray, and had a kindly expression, which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who turned, moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move. What a sluggish stream. He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance, striking through the thought of his dear ones with a sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon an anvil. It had the same ringing quality. 
he wondered what it was. And whether measurably distant or nearby, it seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death now. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They heard his ear like the thrust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the watch below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brains rather than evolved from it. The captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with the gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier, and who in good faith and without too much qualification assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance. "'They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge and put it in order "'and built a stockade at the north bank. "'The commandant has issued an order which is posted everywhere "'declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, "'its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. "'I saw the order.' "'How far is the Owl Creek Bridge?' Farquhar asked." About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out on the railroad and a single sentinel at the end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and a student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get 
the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of the last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against a wooden pier at the end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agony seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire, heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced, he had only power to feel, and the feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud, of which he was now merely the fiery heart. Without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward, and the noise of a loud splash, a frightful roaring in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose around his neck was already suffocating him, and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness, and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible... He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot, that is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, oh, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest as first one and then another pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back, put it back, he thought, he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the directest pang he had yet experienced. 
His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out at his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight, his chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in possession of his physical senses. They were indeed prenaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they may record things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors in all the dewdrops upon the million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eye, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down the stream. In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly, he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was Grey Eye, and remembering having read the Grey Eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them, nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar, and he turned himself half round. He was again looking at the forest, on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking part in the morning's work. How coldly and piteously, with what an even calm imitation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company, attention, shoulder, arms, ready, aim, fire. Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara. 
yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley and, rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on his face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm when he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream and near to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make the martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound. Diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard a deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly... He felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular, horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments, he was flung upon the gravel at the... of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted the definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the space among their trunks, and the wind made their branches the music of Aeolian harps. He had not wished to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanted spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grape-shot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, brushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. 
Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he had lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall, he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road, which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars, looking unfamiliar ungrouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which once, twice, and again he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his head to find it horribly swollen, he knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking. For now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All his ears left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. And as he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting, with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, oh, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of the neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. End of an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Recorded by Elise Sauer, Houston. August 1st, 2012. Thank you everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out the show at pgttcm.com. Check out the show notes on your listening device, on your smart device, on your laptop, or however you're checking this show out. Follow the show notes to check out the people who have been on the show as guests, find out what the books they're working on, or art projects or movies, and of course, check out the sponsors. Support the people who support us. Find cool stuff from those folks over at Psychedelic Water. It's water with
with mild psychedelics that are legal in America, suspended in green tea and other delicious flavors. And we've also got Taza chocolate. And Taza chocolate, they are out of Somerset, Massachusetts. It's stone ground chocolate. They use dairy alternatives. It's vegan. And oh my good. It is really good. Some of them come in bars. Some of them come in the eels, like the abuelita. You can mix it in, into, uh, you make your own hot chocolate. It's really good stuff. I really, you can eat it by itself. And that's Tasa. That's in the show notes. Who else do we got? We got Glary. Oh, man, I love Glary. Glary is really inexpensive guitars. You can get some really good prices on amplifiers, get good prices on mandolins. They've got all kinds of cool stuff, not just guitars. I love guitars, but Glary has more more than just guitars. Copper Cow. Okay, Copper Cow is amazing. It's these little packages that have this uh, coffee already inside. Some of them come with creamers. It's flavors like black, lavender, churro, a salt caramel. They've got some really good flavors. I really like the lavender and the black. I'm going to try the churro pretty soon. Um, I have friends who have purchased this and they highly recommend it. Coffee from Vietnam and just this really, 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 really good Vietnamese pour-over coffee that I highly recommend. Golden Goat CBD. Check it out. Golden Goat CBD. I have anxiety issues. I love, I live in a state where you can purchase uh, cannabis legally, so I don't go with their Delta, Delta 8, but do you, do you live somewhere where you can't just, I don't know, walk three blocks and everyone goes, hey, DB, and you get your order that you phoned in and then go home and then work on your podcast. No, maybe you live someplace that's awful. What if you're in Texas? Anyway, uh, check out, check out, check them out. Golden Goat, CBD, Delta 8. They have chewables. They've got uh, gummies. They've got cool stuff like that. They've got uh, tinctures and whatever you need to get you going in the direction you need to be going. The Fred Wire. DIY guitar, guitar parts, and guitar accessories. Centrally located in Utah. Get what you want pretty darn quick. The Fretwire. So yeah, they've got a pretty good community of people. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an advanced lutineer. The Fretwire, they've got people who will answer your questions. I zoom their, their comment boards and stuff like that when I have questions on like, oh man, I want to make a baritone flying V, uh, but how am I going to get a baritone neck on a Gibson body? Wait a minute, this flying V was so custom already that, oh man, okay. Better check the Fretwire forums, see if anyone else has had this problem. And generally, since there's so many people with the Fretwire, that work with the Fretwire, that do stuff with the Fretwire, it's like having a massive community. And also, pretty good prices, uh, pretty decent shipping, and I have to say, I, I like them. I've, I've worked with other companies in the past for building guitars. I like the Fretwire. And, yeah, if you want to get into building guitars, if you've just, I don't know, during the pandemic, did you learn how to play guitar and want to build them? I did the opposite way around. First, I learned how to build guitars, and then I learned how to set up guitars, and then I learned how to play guitars. So, I don't know, maybe you want to do it the opposite way of me. You know how to play a guitar, now you want to learn the guts of it. Anyway, Fretwire's got you covered. Check them out in the show notes. Back to the show. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Striding Place. Weigel, 
continental and detached, tired early of grouse shooting. To stand propped against a sod fence while his host's workmen routed up the birds with long poles and drove them towards the waiting guns, made him feel himself a parody on the ancestors who had roamed the moors and forests of this west riding of Yorkshire, in hot pursuit of game worth the killing. But when in England in August, he always accepted whatever proffered for the season, and invited his host to shoot pheasants on his estates in the south. The amusements of life, he argued, should be accepted with the same philosophy as its ills. It had been a bad day. A heavy rain had made the moor so spongy that it fairly sprang beneath the feet. Whether or not the grouse had haunts of their own, wherein they were immune from rheumatism, the bag had been small. The women, too, were an unusually dull lot, with the exception of a new-minded debutante who bothered Weigall at dinner by demanding the verbal restoration of the wake paintings on the vaulted roofs above them. But it was no one of these things that sat on Weigall's mind, as, when the other men went up to bed, he let himself out of the castle and sauntered down to the river. His intimate friend, the companion of his boyhood, the chum of his college days, his fellow traveller in many lands, the man for whom he possessed stronger affection than for all men, had mysteriously disappeared two days ago, and his track might have sprung to the upper air for all trace he had left behind him. He had been a guest on the adjoining estate during the past week, shooting with the fervor of the true sportsman, making love in the intervals to Adeline Caven, and apparently in the best of spirits. As far as was known, there was nothing to lower his mental mercury, for his rent roll was a large one. Miss Caven blushed whenever he looked at her, and being one of the best shots in England, he was never happier than in August. The suicide theory was preposterous, all agreed, and there was as little reason to believe him murdered. Nevertheless, he had walked out of March Abbey two nights ago without hat or overcoat, and had not been seen since. The country was being patrolled night and day. A hundred keepers and workmen were beating the woods and poking the bogs on the moors, but as yet not so much as a handkerchief had been found. Weigall did believe for a moment that Wyatt Gifford was dead, and although it was impossible not to be affected by the general uneasiness, he was disposed to be more angry than frightened. At Cambridge, Gifford had been an incorrigible practical joker, and by no means had outgrown the habit. It would be like him to cut across the country in his evening clothes, board a cattle train, and amuse himself touching up the picture of the sensation in West Riding. However, Weigel's affection for his friend was too deep to companion with tranquility in the present state of doubt, and instead of going to bed early with the other men, he determined to walk until ready for sleep. He went down to the river and followed the path through the woods. There was no moon, but the stars sprinkled their cold light upon the pretty belt of water flowing placidly past wood and ruin, between green masses of overhanging rocks or sloping banks tangled with tree and shrub, leaping occasionally over stones with the harsh notes of an angry scold to recover its equanimity the moment the way was clear again. It was very dark in the depths where Weigall trod, he smiled as he recalled a remark of Gifford's. An English wood is like a good many other things in life. Very promising at a distance, but a hollow mockery when you get within. You see daylight on both sides, 
and the sun freckles the very bracken. Our woods need the night to make them seem what they ought to be, what they once were. Before our ancestors' descendants demanded so much more money, in these so much more various days. Weigall strolled along, smoking and thinking of his friend, his pranks, many of which had done more credit to his imagination than this, and recalling conversations that had lasted the night through. Just before the end of the London season, they had walked the streets one hot night after a party, discussing the various theories of the soul's destiny. That afternoon, they had met at the coffin of a college friend, whose mind had been a blank for the past three years. Some months previously, they had called at the asylum to see him. His expression had been senile, his face imprinted with the record of debauchery. In death, the face was placid, intelligent, without ignoble lineation, the face of the man they had known at college. Weigall and Gifford had no time to comment there, and the afternoon and evening were full but coming forth from the house of festivity together, they had reverted almost at once to the topic. I cherish the theory, Gifford had said, that the soul sometimes lingers in the body after death. During madness, of course, it is an impotent prisoner, albeit a conscious one. Fancy its agony and its horror. What more natural than that? When the life spark goes out, the tortured soul should take possession of the wakened skull and triumph once more for a few hours while old friends look their last. It has had time to repent while compelled to crouch and behold the result of its work, and it has shrived itself into a state of comparative purity. If I had my way, I should stay inside my bones until the coffin had gone into its niche, that I might obviate for my poor old comrade the tragic impersonality of death, and I should like to see justice done to it, as it were, to see it lowered among its ancestors with the ceremony and solemnity that are its due. I am afraid that if I disturbed myself too quickly, I should yield to curiosity and hasten to investigate the mysteries of space. You believe in the soul as an independent entity, then, that it and the vital principle are not one and the same? Absolutely. The body and soul are twins, life comrades, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but always loyal in the last instance. Someday, when I am tired of the world, I shall go to India and become a Mahatma, solely for the pleasure of receiving proof during life of this independent relationship. Suppose you were not sealed up properly and returned after one of your astral flights to find your earthly part unfit for habitation. It is an experiment I don't think I should care to try unless even juggling with soul and flesh had palled. That would not be an uninteresting predicament. I should rather enjoy experimenting with broken machinery. The high, wild roar of water smote suddenly upon Weigall's ear and checked his memories. He left the wood and walked out with the huge, slippery stones which nearly closed the river wharf at this point, and watched the waters boil down into the narrow pass with their furious, untiring energy. The black quiet of the woods rose high on either side. The stars seemed colder and whiter just above. On either hand, the perspective of the river might have run into a rayless cavern. There was no loneliest spot in England, nor one which had the right to claim so many ghosts, if ghosts there were. Weigall was not a coward, but he recalled uncomfortably the tales of those that had been done to death in the stride. 
one Wordsworth's boy of Egremont, had been disposed of by the practical Whitaker, but countless others, more venturesome than wise, had gone down into that narrow boiling course, never to appear in the still pool a few yards beyond. Below the great rocks which formed the walls of the stride was believed to be a natural vault, onto whose shelves the dead were drawn. The spot had an ugly fascination. Weigall stood, visioning skeletons, uncoffined and green, to the home of the eyeless things which had devoured all that had covered and filled that rattling symbol of man's mortality, then fell to wondering if anyone had attempted to leap the stride of late. It was covered with slime. He had never seen it look so treacherous. He shuddered and turned away, impelled, despite his manhood, to flee the spot. As he did so, something tossing in the foam below the fall, something as white yet independent of it, caught his eye and arrested his step. Then he saw that it was describing a contrary motion to the rushing water, an upward-backward motion. Weigall stood rigid, breathless. He fancied he heard the crackling of his hair. Was that a hand? It thrust itself still higher above the boiling foam, turned sidewise, and four frantic fingers were distinctly visible against the black rock beyond. Weigall's superstitious terror left him. A man was there, struggling to free himself from the suction beneath the stride, swept down, doubtless, but a moment before his arrival, perhaps as he stood with his back to the current. He stepped as close to the edge as he dared. The hand doubled as if in imprecation, shaking savagely in the face of that force which leaves its creatures to immutable law, then spread wide again, clutching, expanding, crying for help as audibly as a human voice. Weigall dashed to the nearest tree, dragged and twisted off a branch with his strong arms, and returned as swiftly to the stride. The hand was in the same place, still gesticulating as wildly. The body was undoubtedly caught in the rocks below, perhaps already halfway along one of those hideous shelves. Weigall let himself down upon a lower rock, braced his shoulder against the mass beside him, then, leaning out over the water, thrust the branch into the hand. The fingers clutched it convulsively. Weigall tugged powerfully. His own feet dragged perilously near the edge. For a moment, he produced no impression. Then an arm shot above the waters. The blood sprang to Weigall's head. He was choked with the impression that the stride had him in her roaring hold, and he saw nothing. Then the mist cleared. The hand and arm were nearer although the rest of the body was still concealed by the foam. Weigall peered out with distended eyes. The meager light revealed in the cuffs links of a peculiar device. The fingers clutching the branch were as familiar. Weigall forgot the slippery stones, the terrible death if he stepped too far. He pulled with passionate will and muscle. Memories flung themselves into the hot light of his brain, trooping rapidly upon each other's heels, as in the thought of the drowning. Most of the pleasures of his life, good and bad, were identified in some way with this friend. Scenes of college days, of travel, where they had deliberately sought adventure and stood between one another and death upon more occasions than one, of hours of delightful companionship among the treasures of art and others in the pursuit of pleasure, flashed like the changing particles of a kaleidoscope. Weigall had loved several women, but he would have flouted in these moments the thoughts that he had ever loved any woman, 
as he loved Wyatt Gifford. There were so many charming women in the world, and in the thirty-two years of his life, he had never known another man to whom he had cared to give his intimate friendship. He threw himself on his face. His wrists were cracking. The skin was torn from his hands. The fingers still gripped the stick. There was life in them yet. Suddenly, something gave way. The hand swung about, tearing the branch from Weigall's grasp. The body had been liberated and flung outward, though still submerged by the foam and spray. Weigall scrambled to his feet and sprang along the rocks, knowing that the danger from suction was over and that Gifford must be carried straight to the quiet pool. Gifford was a fish in the water and could live under it longer than most men. If he survived this, it would not be the first time that his pluck and science had saved him from drowning. Weigall reached the pool. A man in his evening clothes floated on it, his face turned towards a projecting rock over which his arm had fallen, upholding the body. The hand that had held the branch hung limply over the rock, its white reflection visible in the black water. Weigall plunged into the shallow pool, lifted Gifford in his arms, and returned to the bank. He laid the body down and threw off his coat that he might be the freer to practice the methods of resuscitation. He was glad of the moment's respite. The valiant life in the man might have been exhausted in that last struggle. He had not dared to look at his face, to put his ear to the heart. The hesitation lasted but a moment. There was no time to lose. He turned to his prostrate friend. As he did so, something strange and disagreeable smote his senses. For a half moment he did not appreciate its nature. Then his teeth cracked together. His feet, his outstretched arms pointed towards the woods. But he sprang to the side of the man and bent down and peered into his face. There was no face. This striding place is called the stride, a name which it took of yore. A thousand years hath it borne the name, and it shall a thousand more. End of The Striding Place by Gertrude Atherton Read for you by Chiquito Crasto, Birmingham, Alabama What a bunch of spookiness that was. I hope we learned our lesson and whatever the moral of that spooky story was. Or we just got spooked. Anyway, hey everyone, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're having fun enjoying these spooky stories. I'm trying to keep the music to the minimum because someone said, hey, it's too loud and it's distracting from the spookiness. And I said, hey, I'm not that great at creating atmosphere for spookiness. Unless it's like an RPG or a haunted house. Anyway, so thanks everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, DB. Join us weekly when Farmer Dave and I get more into the Cthulhu Mythos and less about spooky stories. And we have special guests like Ken Height, Scott Glancy. In the past, we had Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman with all kinds of various writers, game designers, artists, musicians. You name it, we've had them on. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. And join us again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to South Agua. You're going to get that shirt in the shop. P-G-T-T-C-M dot com. 
check the show notes, check out our sponsors, check out the links, check it out, and goodbye, goodbye.